Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we are starting a series today uh, called You Asked For It, uh, where you turned in a few topics, and the top one was the Holy Spirit. And as I looked at that, it will very likely uh, take up this whole series. Uh, Might be able to get to one other thing, we'll just see. But your questions uh, come along the topic of, well, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And how do we relate to him? Those are the sort of the three questions we need to at least look at over this series. And because he's so important, uh, we, we, we need to spend as much time as we can Sort of a mini-series, if you will, on this topic. We're not going to do A to Z, so it's not sort of a whole theology course on pneumatology. But, uh, but we're going to just dive in and peel some things back that are important. You will have to think theologically at first. We've got to lay a theological groundwork. One of the reasons why uh, you don't hear a lot on the Holy Spirit is because it's really easy to jump to the forward pieces in Paul later in the New Testament and deal with the fruit of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. But the Gospels and Acts and maybe even 1 Corinthians scare us a little bit. So we never go that far. So we never get really a whole lot of theological groundwork developed to answer some of the tougher questions about the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to need to do that. Uh, and that's what I, I want to begin doing today. When I was a kid, we moved around a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. So for long stretches of time, my best friends were my two sisters, one a year younger than me, one five years younger than me. And so we'd move into a new area. I, you know, Maybe some of you have figured this out. I have a very shy side to me. I'm not outgoing and gregarious. That's my wife's responsibility in this relationship. And so uh, it was hard for me to make friends. I have lots of stories on how my mom helped me make friends when I was a kid. So when we'd move into a new area, you know, if we were going outside, kids today don't go outside to play. We went outside to play. When you told your parents you were going outside, you were going outside to play. You didn't know what you were going to play. You were just going to do something make-believe. That's what you knew. So I would go outside, and we would play, and we'd find things. We used to play with sticks and guns, something. We'd play these games. And uh, it was always easier to play with the sister that was a year younger than me because she could understand the game. She, she, she understood what we were doing. There was a, a little higher level of competition than the sister that was five years younger than me. It was no fun. The problem was my youngest sister was the one that always wanted to play. And the, the other sister, the year younger than me, I had to go to great lengths to talk her into playing. So if I could get her to play and then she wouldn't play very long and the younger one would want to play, but I didn't want to play with her because the intensity wasn't I didn't have enough competition. And so we hurt her feelings a lot. And one day when we were pretty little, uh, we were going to play hide-and-seek, and my older, you know, the sister that's a little older, we, we decided to hide her in a box. 
So we hid her in a box at a neighbor's house next to her house. And she just got in that box and sat down. And I can't remember if we shut her in and she wasn't able to get out or not. I can't remember that. I do remember going home and my mom tells the story that uh, she would say, uh, we would come home and the reason she figured out Danae was missing was because we would say, we, were sort of, we, we realized something's wrong with this picture. Enough to at least say to mom, where's Nene? That's what we called her, Nene. Where's Nene? And my mom sort of picked up on, you've done something with Nene. And I remember my mom had to go get her out of that box. She'd have sat there. I don't, I don't know what would have happened. All I know is uh, uh, we had hit her there and it was sort of scary. My older sister and I just didn't know how to relate to her five years younger. And we had, to, we had to do a lot together. So we didn't know how to relate to her. So we just sort of left her out as often as we could. And that developed some serious, over the years, that developed serious issues between uh, my younger sister and me. And now the, the reverse has happened, just so you guys know, because I know you're thinking, wow, I would hate to have grown up in his house. And it'd be his sibling. We're actually closer today. I'm closer to my youngest sister than I am. Uh, my older one. Uh, so the tables have reversed. Anyway, I, we left her out. And I, I, I'm thinking we kind of do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. Not really sure what to do with her. Not sure how she interacts with us. So we just sort of leave her out. She's in the family, but she's sort of out. Kind of do that with the Holy Spirit. Not sure how intense. Not sure if we understand everything of who they are and what they're doing. Uh, not sure how challenged we're going to be. We're not sure what to do with so we sort of leave her out. One of the authors that I read this week said, uh, we relate to the father and we relate to the son, uh, but then he put the Holy Spirit down, down here as if we're not really sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. These are categories that are kind of familiar to us. And the truth is, is that we're given lots of images and information about them in the, God, in, in the, in the scriptures. We, we just seem to have more available to us. And the dynamic of this relationship is easier for us to grasp. It's in categories we can grasp a little bit easier. But the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, is not. And so when we look at this, I would say in our camp, and by the way, I am going to have to discuss the difference in, the, in, in certain theological camps. So you're going to have to just tolerate that. And by the way, you're going to have to tolerate a lot if you want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, you better be ready to talk about a lot. And you better be ready to be uncomfortable. And you better be ready to, whatever position you have about the Holy Spirit and things, give some of it up. Has everybody agreed to that? You better be ready. All right, so the reason we're different than, say, gateway. You say, well, I can't believe he just said gateway from the pulpit. <laughs> I know. But most of the questions I get are from Gateway because Gateway is our local church that is, is, has uh, some ideas in, uh, of the Holy Spirit that are a little different than ours. Now, I want to just tell you something about Gateway. Love that church. think it's a great church. Its leadership is some of the highest level of leaders in church today. What they're doing over there is amazing work. I prayed for him this week. There is no issues of fellowship with Gateway. I can hang with Gateway. Okay? We differ on some things, but none of them are the things that make, make anything a problem. Okay, So that's why I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to clear the air right there. I'm not, I'm not 
I'm trying not to make the distinctions that feel awkward. I'm just trying to say there's a difference. So Gateway is going to put the Holy Spirit up here. You in our camp, you and I, typically conservative theologically, we're going to put him down here. So for some, some of us, he's, he's sort of the shy one of the Trinity. He, he, he's like me when I was growing up. He gets left out a little bit in our camp. And this one here, you walk into the party, he's sort of the, sort of the crazy guy in the room. He's like, I don't know if I want to get next to that guy. That guy's a little bit crazy. So we make him a little probably more shy than he is. And perhaps up on this top, we make him a little bit more of a freelance operator than he probably is. Is that, is that fair? That's probably fair. Now let me say something else that's really important. Uh... They're somewhere in the middle, okay? Both can do a disservice to the Holy Spirit. Both can. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you what. It's very understandable that we do that. I want to give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, we don't have near the information on the Holy Spirit that we do on these two. We have, we have a good amount, enough to operate, but we have a little more information on a biblical level. That's why most of your sermons are going to be about these two. That's just a fact. The second reason that I think this happens is because think about how the Spirit is described. Wind, fire, breath, a dove. All these concepts are mystical They're a little dangerous, uncontrollable. I had a bird fly into my garage yesterday while I was cleaning it. And in in Haslett, you don't have birds. You have prehistoric sort of, they're prehistoric, they carry you away. And I don't know about you, but I have the phobia for birds. It's called birdophobia. That's what it's called. I have it and, and they'll attack you. And so I gra- I'm, I'm hiding behind the car, grab a broom. I'm so glad none of you saw this. And I have to chase him out. So when we talk about birds flying around, listen, unpredictable. I have no idea what's going to happen. So you give me birds, wind, fire, breath. It's understandable that we would get him a little, a little messed up. And some of it's intentional. He's mystical, not controllable. Can't put him in a box. Cannot put him in a box. So, the other reason is he doesn't want attention. So with wind, fire, and bird, and dove, you get some of this, wow, he's the crazy guy in the room. How many friends do you describe as, a, as wind and fire? How many friends you got you describe as wind and fire? Then all of a sudden, in another breath, you'll hear this. I only point to him. It's not about me. I only point to him. And you're like, okay, so you must be the shy guy in the room. So sometimes he's the shy guy in the room, and sometimes he's the crazy guy in the room. So it's understandable we would get him wrong. Or, or that we would have wrong, maybe the wrong choice of word. But we mess it up. So how do you figure out his place and his person and his purpose without necessarily 
pigeonholing him into one or the other. That's sort of what's at stake and the reason why the subject gets avoided because it's messy. And uh, we just have to face that fact. Let me say this about the Trinity or about the Spirit. His task is to make the Trinity, all right, personal. That's his task. Um, And he is the single person right now in the Scriptures that the Father and Son have chosen to make the Trinity personal and to make what God intends in us to relate to the Trinity himself personally uh, and, do, and do a work in us is through the Holy Spirit. Your first experience with God was with the Holy Spirit. That was your first experience. And I will tell you that anyone after is with him. Now, I know that's just probably, wow, I didn't, I just, we, just, we don't put it in that category enough. In that category enough. So, um, that would mean that something's definitely missing if you keep him here. Potentially. Uh, but probably better to say, you're, everything is sort of missing. If you're missing out on him, you're missing out on the whole thing at some level. So, here's my point. They work in profound harmony together, okay? Um, Abraham Kuyper, a guy that I was reading on the Holy Spirit, said this. Even though we honor the Father and believe on the Son, he says, how little do we live in the Spirit? It's sometimes we think the Holy Spirit is sort of added accidentally to the great redemptive work, and we're not sure where to put him. And he's definitely right. So what I want to do today is something probably you wouldn't have expected in a series that starts like this. I'm going to take you through the entire, this is going to feel overwhelming, Gospel of John. And I'm going to show you who the Spirit is because we need, listen, if we're going to decide where to put him, you need a little bit of theological groundwork. Uh, And we've got to lay that before we can get too specific. So let me just give you a picture and then we'll launch into John and we are going to fly because we got to get all the way through John. All right, so let me draw you a little picture. Uh, so here's the Trinity, okay? Father, triangle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, the goal of the Trinity, remember, they function in relationship. This this dictates everything about the nature of God and our relationship with him. We don't have time to go into it, but if you were going to start on a series in pneumatology, you'd spend the first nine weeks in, on the Trinity. So I'm summing up nine weeks in that picture. So whatever this dynamic is, they want to share it with us. So in order for him to share it with creation... He's, some radical things have to happen. The son, so the father wants this. The father seeks it. The son has to secure it, procure it. And then the Holy Spirit has to make it real. 
has to make what the son did real to us. That's what his job is. That's probably the easiest way to define the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to make his will get done, the work that he did through the son, for that work to be applied to us. That's the easiest way to picture it. That's nine weeks of the Trinity. Okay? So, John is the gospel of the four gospels. John is the gospel that makes that connection absolutely the clearest, the best, and works the hardest to make that happen from the very, right out of the gate all the way to the end. And if you see that connection, then you'll understand the role of the Holy Spirit when we get a little bit further in it. So that's why I got to walk you through this. So are you ready? Because you do need to take a breath. All right? You need to take a breath. All right, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go right to the beginning of John. Let's see how fast we can pull this off. So right at the beginning in the, in the baptism, I'm just going to point out some things, only highlighting. We don't have time to look at every passage in depth. John testifies. Here's what John sees. When Christ comes on the scene, John the Baptist is about to baptize him. Here's what he said. I saw the, the, the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. So the first thing you want to see is that whoever, whenever we identify who Christ is, immediately there's a connection to the Spirit. Okay? You've got to see them coming together. And notice it says it remained on him. It stayed with him. He becomes the carrier of the Spirit. He's not going to do one thing the Father has told him to do without the Spirit on him helping him do it. Not one thing. There is literally no disconnect. John leaves out the water baptism. He says, I did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, here it is repeated, uh, this is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to have to understand what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. We'll do that a little bit later. For right now, whatever... uh, But right now, I want you to see that Jesus is a carrier of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to do something with it. That's John's picture, that the one we identify is the carrier of the Holy Spirit. John doesn't even mention the water baptism. He doesn't go through Jesus' actual baptism. He focuses on the Spirit. Why? Because his, his focus is more on spirit baptism than water baptism. Does that make sense? He doesn't, he doesn't give us the details of Jesus' baptism. For that reason, he is connecting Jesus to the Spirit, and he won't let you ever disconnect him. All right. So let's go to the second one. Here we get to John. Hey, listen, by the way, John 2, don't have time to look at it, but you can mess with the water and the wine. Okay, the water gets turned into wine, and you'll see why water is so important to John. It's incredibly important to John and what the picture is. But here's what he says in, to Nicodemus in chapter 3. When this religious man comes to him and wants into the kingdom, he wants in, but he doesn't know how to get in. Nicodemus is, a, is the perfect picture of every single human being. We have no idea how to get into the kingdom. We have no idea how to relate to God because it's a spiritual thing. It's a Holy Spirit accomplished thing. And until God reveals him, we don't know. So Nicodemus represents every one of us. I tell you the solemn truth, Jesus says to him, unless a person is born of water and spirit, this is a really incredible 
incredible, important picture. He's got to be born from it. Whatever the born is, you're born in water and spirit. It's governed by the same preposition and connected by this. The water and the spirit, I'm arguing, are the same thing. They're not two different things. Some people want to make the water a water baptism. Some people want to make it your first human birth. It's not. It's a birth. What kind of birth is it? It is a birth from above. So whatever the above birth is, it's including water and spirit. That can't be water baptism. I'll show you in John why water here cannot be water baptism. Water and the spirit are connected together, and it's so important. So what is born of flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. Now, a couple things uh, when you're interpreting this picture here. Nicodemus is a person who thinks that you relate to God by rules. So when Jesus comes with the spirit, he's going to say, no, 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 it's not, it's not that simple. Most of the human race, that's how we think of relating to God. Just tell me what to do, Lord, and I'll do it, and that's the nature of our relationship. And Nicodemus is the perfect person because he is constantly trying to figure out what Jesus means. He goes, does this mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? What are you saying, born again? And Jesus is trying to say, no, 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 this is a this is a spirit that's got to come in and completely change you, Nicodemus. He's got to do a complete overhaul on you. You've got to come alive to a whole new reality. There's no way that you could just keep a few rules and imagine that you know God. And that's the reason Jesus will eventually tell you that, I think it's this verse here. That's where he says to Nicodemus, describes the spirit as the wind. The wind blows wherever it will. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born in the spirit, born with the spirit, or of the spirit. So there's the wind right there. So whatever this birth is, it's not the kind of thing you could contain in any religious system. It can't be contained in a religious system. Not dictated by rules. No, 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 no. It's more powerful. It's more like wind in that. All right? So it is mysterious. And there is no spiritual life, by the way. There is no spiritual reality or experience apart from Christ. Because they're together. That new birth, the Spirit produces based on what Christ did. All right, so that's what's happening. Now, we're not done yet. Stay with me. That water is the spirit. Now, we got to chapter 3. I might as well go ahead and say. Here's the reason water, I'm going to show you in John, it'll become crystal clear to you that water has to mean uh, the spirit here. Ezekiel 36, uh, which he's sort of imaging, talks about the water, and it talks about the, the new spirit together. So that they're images of each other. That's what I wanted you to see. I don't, I don't want you to miss that. And the rest of John will make it come true. Now let's go to chapter 4. Remember what happens in chapter 4? There's another water image. The woman at the what? At the well. Why do you think there's well imagery? Why does John focus on her and that imagery in the water? And Jesus says to her at this well, everyone who drinks water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water, what kind of water could this be? However you interpret water in chapter 3, you better do it the same in chapter 4. And we're going to see what it is in 4. 
that I will give him. I'm going to give him a water. He'll never be thirsty again. And that water that I will give him will become a fountain inside of him. What kind of fountain will this water produce? Eternal life. So we have to ask the question, what kind of water produces eternal life? Let me ask you this. Is it baptism? Is it water baptism? No, it is not. So what kind of water do you drink and it becomes eternal life? Because that will help us know in John 3 what Jesus meant by spirit and water together. Okay? Now, uh, it's very important because whatever this water is, it brings it to So whatever kind of water it is, when you initially come to Christ, you're thirsty for something. You don't know what it is in your soul. And then he quenches that thirst. He does more than quench the thirst. It doesn't just save you. It's a dynamic experience that continues to well up inside of you. You see? There's something more going. There's a whole new life. It's what Jesus was hinting at in chapter 3. Nicodemus, you can't just come in and obey a few rules. I'm intending to create an entire new reality inside of you. It will feel like not something you got to go to a well and dig it up every day and bring it home with you so you have a little water to work with today spiritually. No, 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 no. I'm going to create a whole fountain inside of you, and it's going to bubble up. Whatever this spirit's doing, it's going to come inside of you. It's going to create a whole new life constantly inside of you, moving and working. All right? So, that's a great verse in Jeremiah 2. I don't think I have time to mess with it, but I'm going to. For my people have committed two evils. Remember what Isaiah said? They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn their own cisterns that hold no water. It's a great verse. Jeremiah 2.13, you can mess with it. Here we go. John 6.63, here's how we know. The Spirit is the one who gives life. Now, just interpret with me. Here's Here's a hermeneutic principle for you. Usually, Scripture interprets itself. Do you want to know who the water is in chapter 3? John 4 sort of insinuates and says, oh, the water is living water. What kind of living water gives eternal life? Well, how do you get eternal life? The Spirit is the one who gives it. So whatever the water is, he's speaking of what? So the Spirit and the water are the same. All right? Human nature, it's a great little line right there. No help. We got nothing to offer. We can't do anything. Spirit does it all. All right, and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So that verse I just wanted you to know because this is an interpretive key. Tells you how to understand water in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 because he doesn't necessarily mention the Holy Spirit specifically even though he says those who worship and worship in spirit and truth. Now, here's another great verse in John 7. You're just seeing the spirit unfold in John because it's one of his priorities. On the last day of the feast... Whenever they would have Pentecost and then they would do the feast, uh, the the feast or tabernacles. And here's what would happen. For seven days they would do this feast. And after every single day, after every single day of that feast, and Israel's witnessing, all of them do it. The priests come out of the temple with buckets. They would go down to the spring and they'd get water and they'd carry it back to the temple and they'd pour it out over the altar. That was the... Because the water signified life. And in the Old Testament, this is important, in the Old Testament, 
the spirit was seen eventually in the future, one day coming out of the temple. So they were bringing the water into the temple and putting it on there as a sort of a picture of the Holy Spirit. And on the last of the seven days, because they would do that at the end of the day, on the last of the seven days, they would do it seven times. Seven times they would walk out there. So all of Israel standing there watching these priests back and forth seven times, bringing the water to the temple, and Jesus is looking at it. And here's what he says to them. If anyone's thirsty, here's the crowd. He's looking at this crowd. He says to them, anyone thirsty, uh, let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow livers, uh, rivers of living water. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here they are hauling all these buckets seven times. Been doing it all week long. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to what? Come to me. I am that temple. I'm the new temple that the spirit flows from, the water flows from. And by the way, you know what the other imagery is here? Because listen, from within him, you know what this is referring to? Remember in Numbers chapter 20 when Moses struck the rock at Meribah and the water came out of it? So you got two kinds of imagery here. you got temple that Jesus is saying he is. He's also saying, I am that rock. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 10.4, you will see Jesus is the rock that they struck that you drink from. Remember one of my professors at Liberty telling me, you know why Moses didn't get into the kingdom? You know why Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land? He struck the rock twice. How many times was the rock supposed to be struck? Who was the rock? Christ. You don't kill him twice, kill him once. And from him, and when you kill him, water gushes out of him. Keep that thought. So if you're thirsty and you want to listen, where do, the, where do they come from? From, from, in, from within him, and this is a, not a great interpretation. You know what that means? From his belly. That's the literal phrasing. From his belly will the waters flow. Now, we already know John has already established in John chapter 1 that the Spirit is on him and in him, and it will remain on him. He's the carrier of it. He has it and possesses it. Only he can distribute it. And now it's looking like he's a temple and a rock that it flows from. So you see in this connection between the two. Uh, now notice what John says here. Um, now he said this about the Spirit. He said this about the Spirit. That's what he was talking about. Whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus wasn't glorified yet. So when does Jesus get glorified? It's a complex event. You could say he got glorified at the cross. You could say he got glorified at the resurrection. And you can also say he got glorified at the ascension when he rises up. This is a, for John, these three are a complex event. You could say it happened at either one of them. Even though we know officially that the spirit doesn't come down until Jesus goes up here. The Spirit is essentially being poured out from the moment that Jesus dies. That's what glorified means. That's what John helps us understand glorified as. That it becomes a complex event when you say, when does the Spirit come? You could say this, after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended. All three. All right? 
In other words, here's what John is doing. John is not going to let you talk about the Spirit without connecting it directly to what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. Can't disconnect it from that. Now, we're not going to spend time in John 14 through 16 where Jesus explains probably the deepest that our Bible has on who the Spirit is and what he's here to do. We're going to come back to those chapters. That's 14, 15, and 16 where Jesus says... Uh, it is to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the advocate. Later in the text, he tells us who the advocate is. It's the Holy Spirit. So it is to your advantage. That's just a little secret put in right here in case you wish you were hanging out with Jesus all day. No, no, no. I need to go, I need to go so that you can operate better. There's no operation without the Spirit. All right? So we'll get back to those details later. Just want you to see, the, again, the connection between uh, the Spirit and Jesus going away. They're connected. All right. So now let's get to this text here. Let's jump all the way to chapter 19, because where the next imagery comes, and think about this for just a second, and let it sink in, because it's incredible. One of the soldiers pierced his side. He was already dead. And he threw a spear in his side. What did John already tell us that the spirit is going to come from? Inside his what? His belly. John is the only one who puts that blood and water come from his side after he's pierced. Why do you think he does that? What do you think water means? We sit around all day going, well, there's a certain amount of water in your body. Of course it means that he had a physical body and that there was water in it. But for John who's the only one to mention it. When he's been talking about water all this time, what has he been saying? When I die, I will pour out my spirit. That water is a little picture of the spirit coming out of him. You say, how do you get the spirit out of the one John said it came on in him and it stayed in him? How do you get it out of him? You crush him. You crush him. And new life comes. That's the mysterious water that's coming out of him. John wants you to reflect on that. At the end of the book. It's not until Jesus dies that the spirit can come. It's not until he's glorified that it can come. And this is a picture that it is going to come out of Jesus after he's crushed. Now, let me sort of help you understand um, what, what is happening here. Uh, when you and I think of the blood, we think of salvation. I need somebody to keep me out of hell. I need somebody to get me into heaven. I need somebody to save me from this problem. But when we think about the this, this water coming out at the same time after what John's taught us, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not just trying to keep you in. I'm not trying to just keep you out of hell. I'm not trying to just give you your ticket to heaven. I'm trying to change your life completely. It's, it's blood and water. Because you can't just have what I did for you here on the cross without getting what comes out of me when you accept me. That's what you're getting from me. That spirit. That's what he's saying. So it means your life is going to be transformed. That means the spirit's in charge of your transformation. It's in charge of taking what Jesus has done and making it real in our lives. That's what John is insinuating in the water. So the Spirit 
Spirit sort of takes the spoils of the victory of the cross and pours them out on us. Everything God intended to accomplish in the cross, the Spirit accomplishes in us. It actually makes it real. John 14 through 16 will make that even clearer. So there's your water. Now, there's one more. We looked at it. We actually didn't touch it when we were at Easter, but we looked at Thomas. Remember the Christ appears to the disciples? Thomas isn't there. Here's what he says to them after the resurrection. So you see the water coming out, which is a picture of the Spirit coming out of him. Then in John 20, you see him say, after he said this, he appears to the, you know, the ten of them, and Thomas isn't there. After he says it, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't come down until Acts 2. This is sort of a preliminary picture because the Holy Spirit is so important to John that John connects the outpouring of the Spirit to the cross when Jesus' spear is thrown into his side. Then he connects Jesus to the Spirit right after the resurrection, right here. This is sort of a precursor. To Acts 2, when the Spirit comes down there. That's the ascension. You see what I'm saying? For John, it's a complex event. And the Spirit is seen coming out of him at all three stages. Why? Because John does not even want you once to think of the Holy Spirit as something separate from who Jesus is and what he did. Not for a second. Now. All right. Listen. Hey, we did good. We got through John. That's the water imagery through John and the Spirit coming out. You say, now, here's something just I think is really just beautiful. We'll close. Right here, when you see this, you're already thinking Acts 2 because you know the Spirit's coming down. Now you get something else about the Spirit. The Spirit is going to help us because the next verse, which I don't have up here, is you will forgive, you, you will, you're going to be able to teach the message of forgiveness. So in other words, we know that in Acts 2, when the Spirit does come down, it's for mission. It's to carry out his mission. So in other words, they're so, Jesus and the Spirit are so closely linked that the moment he leaves, he immediately empowers us to do what he was doing and actually, according to him, to do it better than he did it. We'll see that in John 14 and 16. To do it even better than I did it. With a greater reach than I could do it. So whatever the Spirit is, it's coming from Christ and it's going to empower us to do what we're supposed to be doing here. There, there's no way we can operate without Him. So because of the Spirit, it won't just be the 12 guys At the beginning of Acts, who get all the power and the ability to reach people. We all get it. That's what he's saying. There's a close connection between those two. Now, the reason for hope. So what's the application there? The reason for hope in a world like ours where you and I are probably waking up every day. And if you get a news feed and your phone buzzes and the New York Times tells you, here's the five things you ought to be briefed on today. And you look at those, you read those five things and you go, I don't think I want to get up. I can't believe what he did, what he said, what he said he was going to do, what they said, what this happened, and you're like, who wants to get out of bed? 
What hope is there for this world? We live in a postmodern world, seems less Christian than ever before. Can I tell you what the beautiful message of this is right here? There is not one era, not one culture, not any time in history that God can't do his work because it's the spirit that does it. It's not up to you to do it. So if you feel defeated, like, oh, we, we have no impact in the world. We can't do anything. We can't reach anyone. No, it's always, here's what John's been trying to say all along. It's always been a miracle, Nicodemus. It's never been because of who you are. So you say, I wish we had a world of Nicodemuses. They'd be all just these great, nice, religious guys. And Jesus would say, he can't even see my kingdom. He can't even see it. That's the last thing we need. Because the Holy Spirit has got to change every single person's heart, and it doesn't matter what it is. You know, when I say the name Justin Bieber, a thousand different things come to your head. This poor kid, Screwball, for so long. Grew up in a Christian home, if you know the story of his mom, but abandoned it. But then has later, recently, more recently, really given his life to Christ and has said some profound things, is doing profound things, being discipled by one of the pastors in California, a great guy. And so uh, when, you think about, when you think about him in this culture and, and, the, and, the, and the unique subculture he lives in, you go, how is anybody in that frame of mind ever going to come to Christ? And then we have a little, uh, have you seen him singing Reckless Love? You want to see for a couple seconds? Yeah, me too. Can you, put that, can you put that up there real quick? This is him in a car. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found. Isn't that awesome? He's singing that in his car. Now, the Holy Spirit has done nothing for his hair. If you, if you looked really close, he's done nothing for his hair. Absolutely nothing for his hair, but it has completely changed his life, okay? Uh, And you're going, how does that happen? Listen, it's a Holy Spirit miracle. You have that. This world has hope because of that. And if you diminish the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to lose hope. And worse than that, you're going to lose impact. Think about this for a second, because i got to close right now. Isn't it ironic that the one who has said, I can quench your thirst, when he gets to the cross in John 19, this changes everything about this image, when Jesus gets to the cross and says, I thirst. And then says, and then says, and he handed over his spirit. In the book of John, those two things have more meaning. In the book of John, they have more meaning. That means, essentially, that the one who quenches thirsts became thirsty. How? He died. He gave up his spirit. That means death. But it also, for John, means I had to die and become thirsty and be emptied of the spirit that was put on me in John, in John chapter 1. I had to become empty of it in order for you to receive it. That's what he's saying. The one who quenches thirst became thirsty 
for us so we could have our thirst quenched. That's what John is saying. Is that not incredible? Is that not incredible? That's what Jesus has done. And the Holy Spirit now is going to come inside us and make what Jesus has done come alive in us like a fountain bubbling over. And so here's my thing to you. They're going to come out right now. They're going to play. I'm going to give you just a second. Because if you're sitting in here today and you're going, oh, I'm thirsty. I'd like to know this Christ. That might be in you. You can know him today. He can quench your thirst. He can come inside of you and provide. Same thing he did for the woman at the well. As messed up as her life was, Jesus said, all you have to do is ask me for the water, the living water, and I'll give it to you. But for the rest of us who know Christ already, we've got a series ahead of us. And I would like to just challenge you over the next six, eight weeks, whatever we're going to be doing, year, whatever it is we're going to be doing, whatever, God, whatever the Holy Spirit wants us to do, I'll blame you. Easy to blame. All right, wind, breath, fire, easy to blame. We need, to, we need to get our thirst back for him because we're sort of dry. Psalm 42, and verses 1 through 2a. I'm going to give you a second to play. Uh, these ladies behind me here are going to play this, and I, just, I want you to listen to it for a minute and a half, two minutes, whatever it is, and then this service is going to close. So bow your heads. We're going to pray, and then we're going to, and I'm going to read this text to you, and I just want you to ask God to create a thirst in you. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is our prayer and hope that the Holy Spirit would become the person that he needs to become in our lives. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.